little bit of fun tonight. We've been studying, we studied the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Pentecost last week. Why are they 50 days apart? 49 days technically, about 50 days from the one, it's technically 49 days, but 50 days from the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you have the Feast of First Fruits. We identified that as the resurrection because it's always on the first day of the week, the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus Christ is the first fruit the, of the first resurrection, right? He's the first of the first. And when does the first resurrection end? Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. When does it end? The resurrection unto life. When is it completed? Not a trick question. Be more specific. The second coming can mean anything from the rapture, his coming at Armageddon, the end of the millennial camp. What, what are you referring to? Blessed is he who participates in the first resurrection. Resurrection unto life. Because there's a resurrection that's under judgment. So when is the end of the harvest of the resurrection? If Jesus Christ is the first fruits. Not quite. It's at the end of the millennial kingdom. But there's another resurrection in there you have to account for. Which is the resurrection of the 144,000 and the two witnesses. So that's during the seven years, at the end of the seven years of wrath. So there's a resurrection at the end of the seven years of wrath. So that would be the conclusion of the period called the first resurrection, the resurrection to life. And if Jesus Christ is the first fruits, then 50-somethings later, they should close off, and Pentecost is the celebration of the end of the harvest, the completion of the harvest. We talked about the completed work of Christ when he went to heaven, that he took the throne, that he then sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost, and we celebrated that last week. So it was really two weeks ago that we studied it, right? We celebrated it last week. We studied it two weeks ago. Uh, so uh, why 50 days? Because it takes that long to get wheat in and barley? Because it's Pentecost, so it's 50 days. So seven, seven sevens, seven weeks between. That's why it's called the Feast of Weeks in the Bible, not Pentecost often. In the New Testament, it's always Pentecost. The Feast of Weeks is seven weeks from the Feast of First Fruits, which isn't on a Sabbath, it's on a first day of the week. So it's on the first day of the week, the resurrection was on the first day of the week, and so we can begin there, and then seven weeks. So inclusive of both Lord's Days, we have 50 days, inclusive of the first resurrection. Uh, and I just have a fun thing, I have no proof or evidence of this, I just kind of started thinking about it, I was laying down, getting ready to go to bed, I think. And I was just sitting there thinking about it, 50 days. What could that, and I'm just thinking, um, if a generation is 40 years, 50 generations, we are, this is the 50th generation. Makes you think about that a little. You got to work on that a little bit. This is the 50th generation. When did Christ raise from the dead? When were the first, first fruits? First fruits happened when? Between 28 and 30, 28, 29, 30, one of those springs was the first resurrection, uh, was in that time frame. 
And so um, the, if, if, if a generation is 40 years and we go 50 generations from the first resurrection, we come to 2028 to 2030. Uh, we back that and then subtract seven years of the outpouring of God's wrath. Where do you get? 2021 to 2023. Kind of interesting, right? Kind of exciting. Makes you think. And then you compile that with what was going on. Kind of makes you go, hmm. Could be exciting next couple years. Right? It will be an exciting next couple of years, no matter what happens. But it just kind of gets, I was sitting there thinking about that, and I said, that will be 2028 to 2030, minus 7. I said, boy, that puts us right in the wheelhouse right here of 50 generations from the first, from the first resurrection to the completion of the first resurrection, which would be the Pentecost. Pentecost is the completion of the harvest. So the first of the harvest, the first fruits, is right after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then 50 days, inclusive of the first fruits, is the end of the harvest. So just something to throw out there, just some, one of those fun, I'm not a big numerologist, but it's just one of those fun things I like that kind of gets you excited a little bit. So you can uh, think about that yourself for a little while, see where we want to go with it. But tonight's real agenda is to talk about the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. So we have the one uh, celebration that is not a feast, the Day of Atonement. So let's turn in our Bibles again to our main passage, which is Leviticus chapter 23, where we have the summary of all of these. Leviticus 23, we looked at the Feast of Weeks, and now we're going to Move forward in the Feast of Trumpets. That takes us to chapter 23, verse 23, the Feast of Trumpets. Now, remember, well, let's go ahead and read the Feast of Trumpets. It's only three verses, and one of them is only like eight words long or six words long. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall... Offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And wow, a lot less here, isn't it? We have almost no information compared to the last one, the Feast of Weeks, where it went on and on and on and on, uh, compared to the other ones. And so the Feast of Weeks for Pentecost, we had a lot of information to sort through. This time we have very, not a lot of information. So the Feast of Trumpets comes to the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, which doesn't start in January, so it's not July, uh, it starts, remember, in that harvest new moon, which we don't even know what a new moon is in the Hebrew. Could be a dark moon. It could be a full moon. I'm kind of leaning toward it being a full moon, uh, personally. If you, No one's tried to convince me otherwise. I'm really disappointed you guys not trying to hammer me on this one. But uh, maybe I convinced you guys already that quickly. Uh, but uh, the new moon is is the beginning of the month is the new moon. Whatever that is to the Hebrew people, they knew what a new moon was. Uh, and David seems to indicate that the new moon and the full moon are the same. And so I would contend it's probably the full moon. And we talked about creation being, did God create a, a, a dark moon or did God create a bright moon, a full moon? So, 
Yep, and so that's why I asked that question, what kind of moon did God create? Did he create it in its dark, like Islam? It always bothers me if Islam says it's one thing. I always figure it's 180 degrees the opposite. <laughs> okay, and the crescent moon of Islam, that's the beginning of their month, is the first crescent of the dark moon. And so I always figure if that's what it is and that's driving theirs, it's probably the opposite of that. And so the new moon... Um, is likely the full moon. And so we go from that spring full moon after the, the rain season, in, in bringing in the rainy season in Israel. And so we are going off of that, and that lands, as you know, around, we, we understand Passover, and we know, we know now that we're probably a couple of weeks off on the, on the Passover date uh, when you see it in your calendar, because they're going off of a modern concept of a new moon and not a Hebrew concept of a new moon. And, and, and so we, we know we're probably off there a little bit. So we're going to the seventh month, which lands us in our calendar. If, if the new moon is spring, if the first month is a spring month, what would be the seventh month? This is not hard either. It's a fall. It's the autumn, Right? So we're into the autumn months. And so uh, usually this lands in September uh, somewhere. The Feast of Trumpets usually lands in September. And again, whether it's two weeks before or two weeks after the Feast of Trumpets that's uh, on your calendar, if you have a calendar that includes the Feast of Trumpets on it, uh, we have this beginning of the month. Now, why is it a special Sabbath? And remember what we talked about the Sabbath. This is kind of review that the new moon starts the month. Then you count seven days to a Sabbath. So it's not the Julian calendar. It's not a Roman calendar at all. It's completely lunar. And that's why Saturday is not the Sabbath in the Julian calendar at all, in the, any Roman calendar at all. The Gregorian calendar. So the Saturday is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath changes month by month. If you watch when the full moon is, or when the new moon, if you think it's still the new moon, the, the dark moon, then you start counting the day after that. So that's a Sabbath. And so now we're having a special one. So now we have up to three Sabbaths in a row, correct? If it's the first day of the new month, we just got done with what day? The new moon, which usually follows what day? The last Sabbath. There might have been a gap in there because there's 29 days, sometimes more, but, but uh, they could have overlapped. There could have only been a two-day weekend but, uh, or a month end, uh, but at least two, if not three. Because remember, you're going to have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's a Sabbath. Seven, fourteen, twenty-one, twenty-eight is going to be Sabbaths. So the twenty-eighth is going to be a Sabbath. Then the twenty-ninth is going to be a new moon. And now on this seventh month, the first is going to be the Feast of Trumpets, which it says is another Sabbath. So you likely have a three-day event here: Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. Bam, 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 right on top of each other. And so we are looking through the scriptures, saying, "Well, what?" is the Feast of Trumpets all about? And we have been correlating different events in the story of Christ to the various Jewish holidays, 
um, Hebrew calendar. Within the Hebrew calendar, there were making these associations. Now, in Judaism today, this is what they teach, is that the Feast of Trumpets, God gave it to them to tell them what time of year God created the heavens and the earth. And so they believe, they hold to, the, the rabbinic teaching is that the Feast of Trumpets designates the beginning of creation. And that's why they make it the beginning of their political calendar. Their religious calendar begins in the first month, uh, which would be Passover for us, that, that month prior to the new moon prior to Passover. And, but their political calendar, um, their social calendar, begins with, with the Feast of Trumpet, and their teaching is that that's when God created, actually, that was the first week of creation, the first day of creation. Because remember, um, so that, that's how they designate it. That's what they give it significance for. Do they have any biblical merit for that? No, none whatsoever. It's simply rabbinic teaching, and it's a tradition, so they can have some meaning behind why they have it. And that tells you something. What does that tell you? It tells you that in your study of God's word, they can't find any other reason for it. <laughs> they're not really sure why they're celebrating this blowing of trumpets. And so they made that up. And they said, well, that's creation. That's when God created the heavens and the earth. was on the month, well, he didn't create the heavens and the earth on the seventh month. Uh, it, but that's what their tradition has become. So we come to it as a Christian community and we say, well, what can we associate with this event? And there's a really strong movement, you've already presaged me on this, that um, we associate this with what event in Christendom that involves trumpets? Yeah, the rapture of the church. We go to 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, well, there's going to be a great trumpet. We go to um, Revelation, we see the trumpets. Uh, sound, this sound of a trumpet. And so many have, I think, rightly associated that if you want to select any time of year where you anticipate the Lord's coming more than other times of year, it was probably around the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, specifically the first of the month. Now, the problem we have is we have three dates to pick from, don't we? We have the established Jewish Feast of Trumpet Day. We have two weeks earlier than that if a full moon is a new moon instead of a dark moon being a new moon. Or two weeks after that, depending upon how accurate we are and which new moon was the correct new moon in the spring. Correct? So you have three chances at that. They are two weeks apart. So you have, you have a really cool month there to play with of of this week, two weeks later, two weeks later, but it's always going to be what day of the week? Trick question, that one. You don't know. It changes every year because it's built upon the full moon or new moon, the new moon, whatever that is to the Hebrews. So it's built upon the new moon. So the day of the week changes each year. Because of the cycles of the moon, don't line up with the solar calendar that we use. And so we come to this and we say, well, the cor correlation is there that there. This is the one of this is the one part of the Jewish calendar that we can't 
assigned to anything else historically in the work of Christ. The other things, like the Day of Atonement, we're going to have no problem with, right? And even the Feast of, of Tabernacles, we're not going to really have a trouble with that, understanding what that's relating to uh, when we get to that next week, next Lord's Day. And so we come to this and we, and we uh, start to seek to identify things, and we obviously see the trumpets uh, involved in the coming of the Day of the Lord. But it's even more than that. And I want to talk about more than just the rapture. So let's look at these passages together that you're familiar with, but let's just tie them together a little bit, and then we're going to move into the Feast of, of uh, not the Feast, the Day of Atonement, sorry. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. When you go through the Old Testament, Israel was called to blow the trumpets whenever there was supposed to be a gathering of God's people at the temple or at the tabernacle. Blow the trumpets and everyone should gather. Um, certain seasons, it was only the the heads of each of the tribes were to gather, or the family units, the clans, if you will, were to gather with the blowing of the trumpet. The blowing of the, of the shofar is really a call to gathering. That's what it was in Israel. So we still have a good correlation, don't we? If the shofar is there to gather people, does that fit this account in Fresh Thessalonians? Well, sure, you have the trumpet of God, and what's the next thing that happened? We all gather and with God in the heaven, in the clouds. And so we have that similar theme, to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll always be with the Lord. And then uh, let's go, so we have that great correlation. Let's go forward to Revelation. And whether you agree or concur with my position on the seals or whatever, um, is fine, but uh, I'm going to move from my position and, and show this. So my position is that the rapture happens in chapter 7. So that event of 1 Thessalonians 4 with the trumpet of God is the rapture event, which is described in chapter 7, uh, particularly in... Uh, oh, let's just pick up uh, verse 9 and following... Uh, we have the sealing of the 144,000 prior to that. And, I would, and, and the arrival of this great group in heaven that's saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. And so we find that uh, these are all gathered. They are the, the followers of the Lamb are given everything that we expect to be given. And that is, of course, we know that what gathered this group together was the trumpet of God. What's interesting is that that's not where the trumpet theme ends. That's where it begins. So here we have this group from all people, tribes, tongues, and nations that are gathered together in heaven singing this new song of the Lamb that are there. Uh, we just saw the events on earth that, uh, prior to that, the end of chapter 6, uh, being the uh, uh, sixth seal. And now we have the seventh seal open. We have a 
silence for half an hour in heaven, which is phenomenal, incredibly important. And then we have the incense being offered with the prayers of the saints. And what happens? Well, we're into chapter 8. Let's read a little bit of this. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. You see, the trumpets aren't just about the gathering of the saints to their reward. The trumpets are also the beginning of the outpouring of God's wrath. Because the first seven waves of God's wrath are trumpets. There are seven trumpets. The first trumpet is going to sound, the second trumpet, the third trumpet, the fourth. We're going to go right through seven trumpets right here beginning on that day. And so we often go get excited about the trumpets of the Feast of Trumpets being our deliverance, our gathering to God, and we can get excited around that time of year. You should be excited any time of year because God says no one knows the day or the hour, uh, which is kind of interesting. He didn't say you don't know the month or year, but anyway, I digress. Um, you don't know the day or the hour. No one knows, and uh, I've given you three options. You don't know what year, what day, what month, but we kind of have a season. And so we look at this and we say, well, the trumpet is, is the coming of Christ to gather his saints, the use of trumpets. But we also find the use of trumpets, because it's not just a trumpet. Remember, in Thessalonians, there's one trumpet, correct? You're going back there to check it? It's not the trumpets of God, it's the trumpet of God. So there's one trumpet. But this is the Feast of Trumpets, plural. That they're sounding these trumpets. And so the Feast of Trumpets is certainly our in-gathering, but then we have these seven trumpets that are the outpouring of God's wrath, the beginning of God's wrath. And we find them all right on top of each other. Do you see that? That with the arrival of the peoples from all tongues, tribes, and nations that are receiving their reward from Jesus Christ, who's drying up all their tears and all of that that's going on, we have the breaking of the sixth, seventh seal, a half hour of quiet, deadening quiet, and then immediately we're going right into the trumpets, the arrival of the angel with the trumpets. The trumpets are going to be put forward over time. I'm not saying they're all going to be uh, used right away, but they are presented the same day as the rapture. We arrive and wham, it says uh, right away the seventh seal's open. There's no gap between the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. Um, he broke the sixth seal. All these things happened from the sixth seal, which is back in chapter 6. All things happened in chapter 7, then right into chapter 8. Boom. We've got the trumpet of God gathering the saints. We have the seven trumpets of God initiating his wrath. And this is the Feast of Trumpets. So we have them as a single correlated event that is still future to us. We should still be celebrating with great anticipation and excitement the period of time of the trumpets. Because if God is consistent with what he's done in the past, uh, Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. Christ resurrects on the Feast of First Fruits. Christ's sacrifice, Passover, 
Um, we have we talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and its, its significance there. We're going to see the significance of the Day of Atonement. We're going to see the significance of, of, the, of the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, and, and we recognize there's Christology going on here. We get the Feast of Trumpets, we struggle a little bit. Now Israel's going to add some holidays, correct? These are the ones God gave in the law. Israel's going to add some holidays. What holidays does Israel add? Book of Esther. Purim. All right? The, celebrating the two days that Israel could defend herself and, and destroy all of her enemies in Persia. And so we have the Feast of Purim. Okay? What other holiday have they added? Hanukkah, which is the cleansing of the temple during the Maccabean period. And so that cleansing of the temple, and they didn't have enough, they didn't have enough oil, but it never ran out. The, the, the light stayed lit without, and that's why they celebrate with the candelabra, um, really designating the, the candlestick, the candles in the, um, in the temple. It stayed lit even though they didn't have enough oil for it. And so that's Hanukkah, those days of Hanukkah. And... Um, so we have added hollies, but these are the ones given by God in the law, and they are full of Christology. And we see that. They are of significance to us, and it's a shame the church is so ignorant of them as we are. We ought not to be. And so the Feast of Trumpets is one of those that we should be excited about, and it might be a great time for we should, that month of, of, of Lord's Days, we should probably talk a lot about His coming again. Because that's what the Feast of Trumpets, I would contend, is going to be fulfilled yet in the future in Christ's second coming. Any comments or questions on that before we get back to Leviticus and the Day of Atonement? Cool stuff? Let's go to Leviticus 23. And what do I got? 15 minutes, 20 minutes to do the Day of Atonement. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted and sold on that same day shall be cut off from his people. Wow. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person will be destroyed from among his people. You shall do no manner of work it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So, obviously, since it's the tenth day of the seventh month, it is not a normal Sabbath. That would have been the seventh or the fourteenth. So we're, we're at a midweek service here, <laughs> okay? In the middle of the week, so on the tenth day of the month, uh, this is a day of national affliction from sunset to, sunset to sunset, right? So you're going to afflict your souls, uh, which talks about uh, repentance. It talks about, uh, rather than feasting, which all the other ones talk about, it's fasting. And it's about preparing yourself uh, to uh, confess your sin before God. It is the day of the scapegoat. That should tell you what you need to know if you have a good handling on the law. That is the day that uh, the high priest 
goes into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people. Remember, he has to do something for himself. He has to cleanse himself first, take care of his own sins. And Hebrews tells us that's why he was not the end. He was just a picture towards the end because the end one didn't have to cleanse his own sins. Jesus Christ didn't have to atone for his own sins because he was sinless. That's why he's a better high priest in Hebrews. So he had to deal with his own sin, and then he would enter the Holy Holy and offer sacrifice for the sins of Israel. They would have two goats, one which would uh, be sacrificed, and one which he would place his hands on there, confess the sins of the people, and then someone was to lead it out into the wilderness and have it gone, just go away. And that person who led that goat out in the wilderness and let it go, that person was unclean and had to have a special cleansing work when he got back to camp. And so this was the Day of Atonement. It's all about repentance and confession of sin. It is a response of the people to uh, a holy, holy, holy God. It is that work of, of us coming and humbling ourselves before God and seeking him out and his forgiveness, his cleansing, that we might have this restored identity as the people of God for Israel uh, before God, that uh, we've been offering burnt offerings for sin, sin offerings all along. Throughout the year, you offer sin offerings, right? So here, we're not really dealing with we are dealing with personal sin. I'm not going to say there's no dealing with personal sin here. Uh, but it is really a national sin issue. And so the priest is going to sit there and read off every sin that Valerie committed this week, and then every sin Andrea committed this year, not this week, year, and then all the sins that Mrs. Farr, she's told us in, all the sins that, no, I'm just kidding there. Uh, no, we're not naming off every sin. This is the national sin of as a corporate, as a body of, of the people of God that we're going to put the, we're going to symbolically put those sins on this goat and then we're going to have that goat wander off and leave the wilderness and we don't ever want to see it again. It is a wonderful declaration of what is entailed in having a contrite heart saying we are so sorry for the sin we are going to offer a sacrifice to cover it. That's atonement. We're going to have a scapegoat to separate us from our sin. And those are two slightly different concepts, but they're both very precious to us. The blood of atonement is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when was the blood shed? Well, we know that was at Passover, and that was a very powerful thing. Uh, but why is the Day of Atonement so late after the Passover? Why isn't it tied into Passover and all the, all the sacrifice up there? Um, because people don't always recognize their sin at that point. And in fact, most of Israel didn't. When did Israel finally become contrite before God? Many people believe it was about seven months later that this is really God talking about um, when Israel was being judged after being delivered from 
Egypt, when they complained against God, and many of them were judged, they were being brought before the, the mountain of God and had to cleanse themselves before they could appear before God at, at uh, Jabal Musa, or Jabal Laz, and so in Saudi Arabia. And so we find uh, that it took some time. We, we can see their journey to the giving of the law. And so the Day of Atonement is about our response to God's provision of deliverance. And that speaks volumes to us. Because when is your sin truly atoned for? When is it separated from you? Is not when Jesus died. It is when you accept his death by repentance. That's when your sin is atoned for. That's when you are it is separated from defining who you are, and, it, it, and the Bible says your sin is separated from you as far as the east is from the west, which never meet. Okay, the east and west just go. And so, um, so it, it separates you from your sin. When does that happen? Not on the day of the provision, but on the day of the reception of it, and the reception of it requires something of you, and that is a, a contrite heart. A broken and contrite heart. That you have to come, as the Day of Atonement describes it, what do you have to do? You're going to have to afflict yourself in your soul or afflict yourself that day. And if you don't, you're going to be cut off from the people. You're not part of Israel. If you are lighthearted on the Day of Atonement... And if you go out there and work and ignore the Day of Atonement, you will be destroyed. So God says, you deserve to die. Without atonement, without being separated from your sin, um, your death and destruction and alienation is all that's left for us. And so we have this very powerful event that we are to humble ourselves, we are to uh, be remorseful for our sin. We are to be afflicting ourselves, reminding ourselves of our condition without the atoning work of God, that we are sinners and that, that uh, that's all we bring to the table. And we are to be repentant in our hearts. And then uh, we have the application of the atoning, the bloodshed, and the separation, the scapegoating of our sin. What a wonderful thing. Atonement means covering. So the blood of Jesus Christ atones for our sin. It, it covers it over. And so it cannot be seen. That when God looks at us, he no longer sees your sin. He sees the atoning work of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a heavenly view. Atonement is to satisfy heaven. The separation is on earth, right? And so I'm going to send that goat out, and, and that's going to, it's going to be far from me. I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to distinguish myself from my sin. There's my sin. There it goes. I'm not going to chase it. I'm not going to follow it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch where it goes. I'm not going to take note of it anymore. That's not mine anymore. It's not who I am. Now I am a new creature. I am separated from my sin. And the biblical 
uh, of course, the biblical pattern here is that we are really talking about uh, a celebration of when we accepted Christ as our Savior. That's really what it's all 